Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. I just talked with Aminda Smith about her new book, Thought Reform and China's Dangerous Classes, Re-Education, Resistance, and the People, and that was published with Roman and Littlefield Publishers in 2013. This is a book that looks at and chronicles transformations in attempts to conceptualize deal with and re-educate and reform a group of people, and that's variously defined in the book as lumpen proletariat, as vagrants, as petty thieves, prostitutes, and beggars, people who didn't quite fit into the categories of, or didn't comfortably fit into the center of the categories of the people or the enemies, which were two categories that were really motivating and acting as poles for the ideology, the reform efforts, and the practices of Chinese communism in the 1950s. What the book does is chronicle not just what's what happens um, in the sources that Smith looks at to these people themselves, what the um, official sources about re-education efforts were describing in terms of what the practices of reform were, what the uh, policies about reform were, but also it looks at the ways that these marginal people actually help reshape these broader categories of the people and the enemies over the course of this period. It's really, really interesting. Smith takes us into not just um, some really fascinating transformations and pivot points around the relationship between things like labor and reform, education and reform. But she also takes us into some really fascinating stories about individuals who emerge out of this literature and proved to be touchstones for um, to discussions about re-education and uh, activities around reform in this period. She also, at the end of the book, takes us into contemporary China and looks at the ways that people are debating how much earlier practices of reform in the uh, period that she's looking at and practices of re-education are or are not suitable to contemporary China today. It's a really, really interesting book. It was great to talk with Mindy about it, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Aminda Smith about her book, Thought Reform and China's Dangerous Classes, Re-Education, Resistance, and the People. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Mindy, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for offering to talk with me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, of course. I'm excited to talk with you about the book, too. It was really just so much fun to read, and also um, it's making a really powerful set of arguments, and so I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it, and thank you again. So, Mindy, could you start us off by saying a little bit about, um, just in general, what brought you to the field of modern Chinese history? How did you get into this field of study? Uh, you know, I when I was an undergraduate, um, I wanted to go on to study abroad, and there were a few choices at Boise State University, um, not very many, and one of them was China. And so I went to China on a study abroad as a sophomore 
undergraduate. And um, in preparation to go, I took a sort of history of East Asian civilization class. Um, and so with those, we sort of armed with that, I went to China and I got there and I started learning Chinese and I started thinking about, um, you know, people would tell me about the, the momentous transformation that China uh, underwent during the 1950s and beyond. And I became really interested in that. And um, so I decided to tailor the rest of my undergraduate program in that direction. And that's what sort of took me, you know, to graduate school in Chinese history. So you knew even from the point of uh, your undergraduate work that you were interested in the 1950s in particular. Yeah, well, I decided that I was, right? And sometimes making that decision, (laughs) you know, who knows what I was interested in, but that's what I I said I was interested in. And so that's what I did. And of course, I became more and more interested in it as as I learned more about it. Oh, that's great. So the book itself does center um, largely on the 1950s, although it goes uh, sort of a little bit before then and somewhat after that in the larger arc of the narrative, as we'll get to um, as we get into the book. And it investigates, among many things, connections between efforts to intern a group of people who um, we'll talk about at quite some length uh, for the rest of our conversation, and we'll talk about what constitutes it as a group, etc., etc. And that is beggars, prostitutes, bandits, petty thieves in the early 1950s, and sort of looks at the connection between that and the later establishment of re-education and its connection to and um, effect through labor. You're arguing here ultimately, and again, we'll, we'll get to this in more detail, that reintegrating vagrants, so this group of people we'll talk about, into the history of re-education really changes not just our understanding of that period, but also how we understand the scope and the nature of Chinese communist thought reform projects in general and afterwards. So how did you come to focus on this topic in particular? We've already talked a little bit about your early interest in this period, but how about this particular topic? What brought you here? Well, you know, uh, I was really interested early on um, in uh, the re-education of prostitutes. I'd read Gail Hirschhatter's uh, book, Dangerous Pleasures, which had that final chapter, which talked about re-education in Shanghai. And I was really interested in the way that that might have been connected to other re-education projects. And I found out really early on, looking at published sources that were available, you know, in Princeton's library, that um, the re-education of prostitutes had been connected to the re-education of beggars and petty thieves, and that those three groups were mentioned over and over again together. Um, and so I started thinking about you know, what that project was sort of doing as a category for the state, because it was very clearly an important category for them. Um, and then I started thinking about, you know, how that might connect to thought reform more broadly, because, of course, when, as I read the secondary scholarship on thought reform, it was not primarily about that category of people, but it was about people who um, had been accused as so-called enemies or people who had who were accused of political crimes. Um, and so I wondered, you know, what is the, they're using the same words to talk about um, the, the processes by which they're re-educating these two very different groups of people. So what are the connections and the missed connections between those groups and um, within this broad category of thought reform? Great. Now, this did start out as a dissertation, yeah? Yes. Yeah. So- can you talk a little bit for us about that transformation from the, the work as a dissertation to the work as a published book? Were there any kind of major surprises, major transformations, or any points along the way or processes for you um, in that larger tra- set of transformations that are notable that you want to talk about? Uh, well, so the dissertation was really about um, what happened in Beijing with this group of vagrants, these beggars, prostitutes, and petty thieves for about 
you know, eight years, right, from 1949 to 1957. And um, and I, I, I was interested in what this had to do with the creation of this, you know, fundamental category to Chinese communism, the people. Um, but I didn't really get into that that much in the dissertation. And it was very much in some ways a kind of an institutional history of re-education centers. Um, and I looked a lot at um, this category of, you know, enemy versus non-enemy and where did these these vagrants fall in and those are the kinds of things I thought about um, but at my dissertation defense people were really interested and I was really interested in the way that this connected to the notion of the people because it was really up for debate you know were these vagrants members of the people were they enemies were they something in between you know what were they and what could that tell us about this larger category the people which I felt um, at the time had always been marshaled kind of as a foil for something else, but not necessarily taken seriously in its own right as a category that was meaningful. Um, so I wanted to look at that. And so I started doing that by just sort of backing up and looking at um, literature about the reform of these people, looking at um, older uh, accounts of thought reform, which took uh, thought reform as a kind of a holistic process more seriously and, and thought about how, how, how were the people in general reformed. Um, and that was all stuff that I expected I would do. Um, and then, you know, there was the question of labor and what labor had to do with all of this. In the dissertation, I was very focused on the notion that they didn't use actual labor, or at least they claimed they didn't use actual labor to re-educate beggars, prostitutes, petty thieves in the early years of the 1950s, whereas they used forced labor to um, to re-educate enemies. And so that was a big part of the dissertation. But like many dissertations, it had lots of underanalyzed bits. And that's the underanalyzed bits. Um, you know, what has labor really got to do with this? What has labor got to do with thought reform? And I sort of had jettisoned that question. And so I had to delve into that. And that transformed the whole project because, of course, it was always all about labor, even if these people were not ideally performing it. Um, and the third thing that happened um, during the transition from dissertation to book is that I um, had thought I would be doing oral interviews. I had been, um, even at the end of my dissertation work, I had been starting the process of trying to find people who had been re-educated in these institutions in the early 1950s. And I myself was looking for them. I had uh, friends helping me. We were putting things, putting notices on, on bulletin boards on the internet in various places looking for people. And I imagined still that I would be able to find at least a few people I could talk to, even somebody who knew somebody. And I never found a single person um, who who would either admit to having been re-educated in the early 1950s uh, or who would uh, would talk to me about it or, or any of that. Um, certainly, I could find people who had been re-educated um, in the eight in the, in the 90s in 2004, um, certainly, you know, there are people who were in re-education camps for so-called enemies in the early 1950s. Um, but, you know, two of the central arguments in the book are that, one, what happened between 1949 and 1957 is really, really different to what happens in 2004 in re-education centers. And the second argument is kind of that... Um, you know, what happened to so-called enemies in 1952 was completely different to what was happening to these vagrants. And so even though I think oral histories with other sorts of re-educatees are really valuable, um, I didn't think that they could answer the questions that I had. And so this really had to become about um, the sources that I did have and the only places where these people uh, who were re-educated in the early 1950s spoke, which was within these official sources. And so I really had to figure out for myself what what use are these official sources? What can one make of these sources that everyone had for so long told me could not be the foundation of this story because they're 
propaganda, right? And so I had to theorize that for myself. Let's actually, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that was something that was really striking at the beginning of the book, this discussion of the kinds of sources that you were using and the issue of using um, and navigating through official sources as a category and also as a set of individual items that you're weaving together to create your argument. Now, the book itself um, integrates a range of sources in producing these really wonderful set of stories and arguments that are highlighted throughout the chapters of the book. And those story or those sources rather include letters, diaries, novels, films, memoirs, media accounts, classified government documents, some that are still classified and some that are not classified anymore more among other kinds of sources. So you're integrating a really wide variety of material, but you do, um, in talking about how you're integrating this material, raise in the book something that you just raised, which is this issue of how does one use official sources in creating a narrative of a group of people who would seem to be, or who one might argue, and I'm sure as, as you've mentioned it, people have argued, can't be accessed through this kind of official source material. And you talk about it in a really interesting and nuanced way here. So can you talk about that issue um, at a little bit more length for listeners? What is involved in your use of and your theorizing of this category of official sources? And how did that shape the way you approach the project? Yeah, so, so I just to you know, put my stakes out there. I don't think that the sort of graphic history of these people can be can be accessed through these sources, right? I think that the the people who were re-educated, who I'm studying, these prostitutes, these beggars, these petty thieves, I think that they are largely subaltern in these sources because of the um, rhetorical and political goals um, of the people who were recording their stories. Um, now, that said, I say in the book is that I try to put... I mean, if I could have just reproduced all the sources and put them in there, I would have done that. I try to give people as much of these personal details about these individuals as I can so that readers who disagree with me about that can certainly draw their own conclusions. Um, if they think that there are personal stories to be found, um, if you have access to what experiences these people might have had, then then I hope that you know I can provide that, um, that primary source material. But I didn't find it possible to do that precisely because of the kind of arguments I make in the book about the ways these records are being used to make really, really important political and social claims about the nature of the people, about the nature of communism, about the nature of thought reform. So what I have, I think, are um, a series of um, remnants of conversations of, of, of nationwide, society-wide conversations about what it meant to sort of be a member of the people, what it meant to uh, be socially marginalized, um, what Chinese communism could offer to people who were socially marginalized, what it meant to transform one's thinking. Um, and so I look at these things as a way to get um, the broadest possible sense of the full range of meaning and significance that the Chinese communists assigned to thought reform and associated with thought reform. And so even though, yeah, all of the sources that I have um, are official in the sense that they were either published or permitted for publication um, by a state that is, you know, famous for at least attempting to tightly control information. So a lot of these things are archival sources from state archives. Other things were published in China, unlike so-called enemies who left the country and wrote things for presses that, you know, were in foreign countries. Uh, vagrants did not do that. Um, 
not, not in any way that I was ever able to find. Um, but, you know, I came to, to, to see that these official sources, um, were valuable, not despite the fact that they were the idealized visions of the state, but precisely because they were. Right. They gave us a sense of what exactly the state wanted to do, what was so important. And by taking those things really seriously, we get a much more nuanced vision of what various actors at various levels, because of course the state in this time period includes, you know, people who've just joined the movement and been assigned to reeducate prostitutes and have no idea um, what, what, what Chinese communism is about all the way up to, you know, Mao. Right. So, so first of all, I try to sort of think a little bit more in a, in a bit more nuanced way about the category of the state, but within that multifaceted multi-level, um, set of visions about, um, about thought reform. Uh, anyway, I try to use that. I try to use to um, get at, you know, what various people thought they were doing when they re-educated beggars, prostitutes, and petty thieves. And finally, I'll say that I don't think that you can get at the nature of vagrants necessarily or what they might have experienced in these re-education centers, but I do think we see very clearly how their presence, their actions, um, and their experiences transformed not just this set of political efforts, but also like the notion of the people and the notion of state-society relations most broadly. Now, you've just mentioned um, the kind of the, the nuance that you're trying to bring to, and I think that you successfully bring to the category of the state um, in this study. Let's also talk a little bit about another category that's also been coming up, even in these early um, moments of our conversation. And that's a category that we've been variously referring to as vagrants um, or a, you know, in terms of a description of who falls underneath that, beggars, prostitutes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is one of the major groups of people in the book, and it's a group of people whose nature um, and relationship to other supra-individual categories really transforms over this period that you're looking at in the book. It's variously referred to as the lumpen proletariat, dangerous classes, vagrants, among other kinds of names. So can you talk a little bit about this category in the book um, and sort of what links all of these groups of people together, who's included in this category? And um, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so first of all, this is not my category, of course. Um, it's, it was a category um, that was crucially important to Maoism. Um, it was crucially important from the sort of earliest origins of, of um, Chinese communism. So it's not something I created. It's something that um, it's an actor's category. Um, but it's also my analytic category in a number of ways. And the Chinese communists borrow this from, from Marxism. You know, this, there's this notion that there is this group of people which exists at the very bottom of society, at the very margins, people who, um, who, who <laughs> don't even get to be exploited by selling their labor. They're so oppressed and so exploited and so at the margins of society that they have to turn to occupations that lead um, workers, even who, of course, in the Marxist view, are also unfortunately at the bottom of many of these oppressive capitalist societies. So even workers despise these lumpen proletarians, these people at the very, very margins of society. Um, and of course, and you know, Marx. Um, and uh, other theorists would give these long lists of the various people, these wonderful long catalogs of all of the various people who might be in these, you know, street magicians, beggars, prostitutes, um, bandits, various kinds of religious people, um, pimps, 
uh, Petty Foggers, you know, they, they had these long, long catalogs. And in the early um, years of Chinese communist mobilization in the rural areas and the base areas, uh, people like Mao Zedong and Peng Zhen would replicate these sort of rollicking catalogs of, um, of, of bad elements who, um, who fit into this category of the, of the Olympic proletariat. Um, and then over time, uh, many of those people sort of got shifted out of that category into the category of enemy over time. Um, you know, as Michael Dutton has shown this, this category, these two categories of the, 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 the enemy and, and the non-enemy or friends or people, these, these two big categories become the central organizing categories and everything gets put into those two camps. And so some people that used to be members of the lumpen proletariat, so bandits, um, brothel owners, anybody who could be accused of siding with the enemy or um, exploiting members of the masses, including members of the Olympic proletariat masses, so ordinary beggars, prostitutes, those people would be classed as enemies and separated into that category. And so the category of vagrant, mm-hmm. which kind of came after the category of Olympic proletariat, only contained, by 1949, it only contained these people who could be kind of seen as um, victims. They always, there was always this sense that there was this dual nature. The Olympic proletariat had always been at once victims, people who Mao claimed had been forced into their, quote, improper occupations, you know, by years of uh, oppression and exploitation, feudalism, imperialism, capitalism. Um, on the other hand, though, they were people who who stole. They were people who created chaos. They were people who thwarted the revolution, and so they and they had agency in that sense. So they were always at once victims and agents. They were always at once um, sort of on the side of the enemy and on the side of the people. Um, but as it became more and more important to separate enemies and people, they started sort of making um, judgments about who was more enemy-like and who was more people-like. And bandits and brothel owners went into the enemy camp and the people left in the Olympic proletariat or the vagrant camp were people who could be really considered victims, um, prostitutes, the lowest level of beggars in these organized crime hierarchies, um, people who, who were oppressed and destitute as far as the communists were concerned. So we get to 1949 and it's really three categories, beggars, prostitutes, and petty thieves. Now, of course, those are umbrella categories, which mean lots of different things. There are, you know, disbanded soldiers, there are pickpockets, there are all sorts of other people in these categories. So they, so, so when, when re-educators use these terms, beggars and prostitutes, they know they're talking about a diverse group, but much less diverse than the one that they started with in the 1920s. Great. Thank you so much. And this is, um, this actually gets us right into the first chapter of the book where you're looking in detail at the, these two poles, right? These two major categories, the people and the enemy and, and figuring out where to, or helping us figure out where to place the lumpen proletariat and then vagrants in particular within these categories. And they shift right over time. Right. So just if we can sort of lay this out really clearly right at the beginning for listeners who may not um, be familiar with this period in Chinese history at all, and for whom um, perhaps the the history of um, communist China is something completely new. If could you lay out just really clearly right at the beginning, who are the people? Who are the enemies in this early part of the book, um, as of the the nineteen forties? 
Right. And if I could lay that out clearly, that would be great. But <laughs> well, no, no. And I know, and, and, and for listeners, all the, um, the changing nature of these categories and in many ways, the inchoate nature of these categories is a theme that progresses throughout the book. So in, in part, this, you know, this may not be an entirely fair question, right? But for you as a historian, um, you're com- one of the things that I think you do really beautifully in the book is despite the fact that these categories are changing and they're really inchoate, you're really clear and really careful at laying out for us um, along the way very precisely what you mean by these categories and what your sources meant by these categories at each stage. So it is actually possible in the book um, in a way that I'm actually tremendously impressed by to follow this change over time of um, you know, kind of a, of moving targets almost. So maybe can you talk a little bit about, um, about that process for you as a writer? Um, if it, if you don't feel like it's useful to lay out the category or to define the categories themselves at this point. No, I think it is useful. I think I'm being, I'm being slippery. Um, (laughs) So it is. I mean, I think that. so. So at the broadest level, and of course, it's never mapped onto reality and re-educators knew it never mapped onto reality. But at the broadest level, theoretically, you know, Mao once said that the that the sort of, you know, most important question, the question that was absolutely germane to the revolution was who are our friends and who are our enemies? Um, and there was this big distinction between people and enemies. And already right there in those two formulations, you already begin to see a problem because these are set up as dichotomies, yet we already have three categories. We have enemies, people, and friends. And those are, people and friends are not the same thing, right? Um, so, so already we see this breaking down, but in any case, it was set up as a dichotomy. There were people and there were enemies. And basically, um, enemies were individuals who had oppressed the people, and the people were individuals who had been oppressed. Um, and this all functioned within um, this larger old society framework, this notion that um, uh, the old society was a, a phrase that sort of functioned as as shorthand for a conceptual framework that said that, you know, for at least a hundred years, probably much longer, China had been suffering under the influence of capitalism, imperialism, and feudalism. And that was the old society. And it had um, oppressed and left, left the Chinese people oppressed and exploited, denied people their right to participate in labor, denied people their right to live, and, and, and fed the luxurious lifestyles of a select group of enemies, which included, you know, wealthy capitalists, foreigners, um, and, uh, um, you know, various kinds of, of other imperialists landlords, people like that. And so in some ways it was really, in some ways it was incredibly obvious, like who are the enemies? Well, they're the landlords and the capitalists and the, um, and who are the people? Well, they're the people who were oppressed by those. But when you look at the category of vagrants, it immediately becomes um, clear how, how confusing these categories are, because what is a, what is a, a, a woman who is sold into prostitution at a, at a young age, ripped from her family, possibly kidnapped, forced to engage in prostitution against her will, who, um, you know, is, is oppressed and exploited, to use the communists' terms, uh, in that way for, for 15 years before becoming a brothel owner um, and, and you know, selling the bodies of, of young women just like she had been to other people. How do you, how do you decide w- which side of the line a person like that falls on? And so the, the lumen proletariat, these vagrants, always um, sort of pushed at the clear nature of these borders right from the very beginning. And in the, and in the very beginning, they, they, they were really, they were neither people nor enemies. That's what, that's what the, the official uh, 
writings about them said that these people are, are neither people nor enemies. They're vacillators. That's what Mao called them. He said they're vacillators. They have the potential to join one side or the other, but it's our job to try to get them to come over to the side of the people and to stop them from going over to the side of the enemy. Great. Thank you so much. And this is actually really important um, at this early stage of the book, but also it'll it'll continue to be important as we move through the story because one of the things that the book really focuses on is the the texture, the really fine texture of reform efforts and of re-education efforts of these people. And one of the ways that these categories actually manifest in important material, um, really in important material ways is that re-education efforts of people deemed as enemies versus re-education efforts of people deemed as, you know, this other group are really different, at least in this early um, part of the history that you're giving us here. So these categories, they are um, flexible, they're really hard to pin down, but they do actually shape the the physical embodied experiences of the people who are living in this period in really important ways. And you, you map that out really nicely here. So the early um, part of this book in the first chapter takes us into the rural context. So we have vacillators and the rural revolution is the subtitle of this chapter. Can you talk a little bit in this context about a group of people who you mention in this early part of the book called the Arliodze? Who are they and um, where do they fit into the story of re-education efforts in the rural parts of the nation in this period? This, this word seems to be a sort of a northern um, slang, very similar to um, words that words like lumpen proletariat. Uh, the, the, the category seems to be seems to include all of the same people. In the beginning, it's this huge category: bandits and fortune tellers and beggars and prostitutes. And so, it's a word that seems to have come into use when the communists got up areas um, after the Long March. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's this, it's this category of people very much like lumpen proletariat includes lots of, of different kinds of people, people who might be enemies, people who might be people. Um, and, uh, the, but, but really early on, um, mobilizers up in the base areas have to start making those decisions about, about who, who goes where. So, so really early on this category, Arliodza becomes, um, people who are not bandits, people who are not uh, the, the heads of criminal gangs. It becomes beggars, prostitutes, petty thieves, opium addicts. Um, and in fact, it's significant that some of the first English language observers who went into these space areas, people like Edgar Snow, um, started to, uh, to refer to these people as loafers. Um, so was kind of the category that they, that they used, um, to translate this, this word. Um, and these people, uh, you know, uh, it has long been sort of argued, Mark Selden argued this, other people have argued that it was in part getting these people involved in productive labor that allowed the Chinese communists to have the kind of success that they had in the base areas. They they mobilized um, vast amounts of, of previously underutilized labor resources, right? So women, um, but also these arliotza, these these loafers, these people who hadn't been working before suddenly had to work under the Chinese communists and um, and and that's one of the reasons they were able to be as successful as they were, and that's probably true um, because it does seem like they were very successful in mobilizing these people, um, and it seems like they did it in a couple of different ways. They first tried to mobilize them by just you know 
sort of trying to convince them that it would be much better to join the revolution than not, right? That they had been, look, you're a beggar. You have been oppressed. You have been denied the right to have a decent living. You've been denied the right to labor. We're going to give you that right to labor. We're going to give you the stuff that you need to labor. You don't, you don't have any land? Fine, we'll give you some land. You don't have a plow? We'll loan you a plow. You can pay it back when your first crops start to grow. Um, so come on, you know, join the revolution. Um, and anyway, watch how these enemies are being sent to prison. You don't want that to happen to you. Um, come, come join the revolution. And, and they claimed that they had success in doing that. And that makes sense to me. I mean, I think there probably were people who were not happy wandering around as a refugee or a beggar and, and were happy to have some land in their hometown. Um, so that probably worked. And then um, they say, okay, so so a large number of people were, were reeducated that way, or at least um, reintegrated into productive labor. And then there was a group that was a little bit tougher to, to deal with. And we used social pressure. They said they wrote their names on bulletin boards or they told everybody that, you know, so-and-so was a loafer and they had to wear a sign that said loafer around town and that social pressure. And there's lots of documentary evidence that suggests that that's exactly what happened. Um, and then those people didn't want to be humiliated. So they fell in line that way. And then there was a final group of really hardened resistors who they had to imprison for short periods of time in what might be some of the earliest models for vagrant enemy re-education centers. Um, and then, you know, when they were, when they left their base areas and moved into the cities um, in 1949, their records suggest that there were still loafers who had never joined in the productive labor. Now, in the discussion of these Ardhiodza and the discussion of this chapter um, in general, you mention the story of a figure that recurs throughout this chapter, and that's really, really striking, and that's the figure of Han, Han Xiujun. Can you talk a little bit about who Han Xiujun was and why this story, in what way this story of Han Xiujun is central to what's happening in this part of the book? Yeah, this story, I, I just, I love her found her um, actually in an English language propaganda piece from, from 1951, 1951. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was just this little English language piece about this beggar and um, district chief. And it had all these strange romanizations that I couldn't make heads or tails, you know, and I couldn't figure out. Um, so I just tried, I, I, I went through all of the various, cause you know, you, one thing you know about propaganda, if you look at any propaganda at all, is that if it makes it into an English language um, publication, that, that this is a propaganda figure that you're going to find in Chinese language publications. This is all, um, you know, all of this content is shared. And so if you find someone in English, you can you can find them in the in the Chinese propaganda sources as well. So but, you know, I, I didn't have um, the care the Chinese characters designed to try all these various odes. Well, could that could that have been a transliteration of this? And I finally found this woman who was indeed the same person. She had originally been um, a beggar. Uh, she became a, a district chief and eventually um, an official in the government of the New People's Republic after 1949. So um, she was born, you know, to landless farm laborers who lost their land. She had the very her story is the classic story of the oppressed member of the lumpen proletariat. Her, her parents were, were forced out of their jobs, um, in part by an evil landlord, in part by natural It was forced out to beg when they couldn't make ends meet. And then, you know, more uh, natural disaster, Japanese invasion, all of these things forced her to become a refugee, wandering around. By this time, she's got uh, a husband who is supporting, um, you know, deficient in some way. They don't 
quite make it clear what's wrong with this person. But basically, she has to take care of the husband like a child. She has a small child. Her sister is with her. And they're roaming the countryside um, when they encounter uh, a liberated area. They encounter a village that has been liberated by the communists. And there, encounter between the Chinese communists and this member of the Lumpen proletariat, um, Han Shouzhen is, is, is transformed. She's transformed into a member of the people, a productive laborer, and eventually um, a revolutionary who joins the communist party and um, becomes a re-educator herself by going out and getting other vagrants to, to join the revolution. Um, and, you know, there's enough information about her and she shows up in enough historical databases as well as um, propaganda uh, material that I think she was a real person. I think she was definitely a real person and the outlines of her life. I mean, the, the life that I just described, that, that old society life was a very common life for many beggars, um, for many members of the Olympic proletariat. So I would imagine that that, that did close of her actual life. And she looks like she did indeed become an official. Um, and that's also not that unusual. Lots of these rural revolutionaries who joined early became officials later after um, the founding of the PRC. But, you know, she was also a composite portrait of what, um, of the ideal relationship between the party, the people, and the Lupin proletariat should look like in this period. Now, you mentioned at some point in your recounting of Han's story, in the book, that it's actually really significant that she was a woman. And this lit, lets us go into a set of issues surrounding gender and how gender plays out in this context. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why was it important for you um, as the historian here that she was a woman? And what does this tell us about gender dynamics in this in this period and in this context more broadly? Yeah, I mean, this whole this, this whole thing is, um, is obviously... Um, incredibly gendered and, 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 and gender um, is an important category of analysis. It was an important category of analysis for the, the, um, the re-educators who, who were to foment these transformations and it should be an important category for, for us trying to understand what they were doing. And, you know, on the one hand, um, the, the, the sort of old society discourse about oppression and exploitation within which the Chinese communists are operating is one that sort of feminizes all of the Chinese people in relation to um, oppressors and enemies. Um, and within that, the lumpen proletariat are sort of further um, feminized. But of course, within the lumpen proletariat, there are feminized um figures and, and masculinized figures. And so even though the, the, the re-educators and their superiors always want to, and theorists always want to put beggars and prostitutes in exactly the same category, um, you know, there's always this tension between the fact that they see prostitutes as being exclusively female. Um, they just don't even acknowledge the existence of male prostitution, even though we know from all sorts of other sources that there was lots of male prostitution during this period. Male prostitutes were usually uh, re-educated along with um, hooligans or petty criminals. Um, there's some evidence that they were in um, these re-education centers having been picked up for sort of disorderly conduct, which is, you know, a euphemism sometimes for having been a male prostitute in this period. So we know there were male prostitutes, but the, 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 discourse about prostitution does not discuss them. So prostitutes are female as far as re-educators are concerned and as far as theorists are concerned. Whereas beggars um, did tend to be, there tended to be more male beggars than female beggars, but there were female beggars. Um, and you know, re-educators talked about female beggars all the time, yet they tended to kind of masculinize the group beggars. They accorded them a lot more agency, they accorded prostitutes. And in most of the sort of 
propaganda discourse and internal um, records from re-education centers, you forget years that there are even female beggars in these institutions because there's so much talk about male beggars and there's, they're using really masculinized, masculinized language here. So it's really significant to me that Han Xiaojun is a, um, is a woman, right? But that's not the most common figure mm-hmm. see when, 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 when the party is, um, is talking about beggars. Um, but you know, for this particular portrayal, uh, she was a, a propaganda construct and to emphasize the utter victimization of the lumpen proletariat. There's no nature here. There's no sense that she's a parasite. There's no sense that she could have gone over to the enemy, could have gone over to the people. She was always a member of the people in these early propaganda constructions, always. Um, she was always victimized. She always knew she was victimized. She just needed help to understand the context within that, within which that victimization had taken place, and then a little bit of practical help to actually get on her feet and get started. Uh, as a member of the people again. And so it was striking to me that when they wanted to make that argument, they wanted to say, no, no more dual nature. In, in 1949, the, the Lumpen proletariat vagrants are victims. Um, that's the way we're going to read it. We're not going to, we're, we're, we're going to ignore the fact that we know we've been saying for 20 years that they have a dual nature and we're going to say that they're victims because the overriding category now is enemies and people. Um, and that when, once they decided to do that, the propaganda construct that emerges um, is a woman, a female beggar. Now, this actually really beautifully gets us um, a little bit further into the book. In the second chapter, you move us from the countryside to the cities and then eventually into Beijing and into um, re-education centers and internment centers in Beijing. This chapter emphasizes the distinctions drawn between the enemies and the people in a way that you just described. Thought reformers, as you um, just mentioned, cast vagrants as victims who were forced into illegitimate professions. And illegitimate professions, this is a, a term that you also talk about as um, being one of the criteria that Mao is using a little bit earlier to distinguish between who does and doesn't fit into this group of the Lumpen proletariat. So vagrants are firmly here placed on the side of the people. Well, enemy, and, and this is important, again, materially, because while enemies are reformed using forced la- labor, non-enemies were ideally, sub- ideally right, subject only to education and persuasion. And you mentioned here that even though this is an ideal, it was an ideal that actually had power. Okay, so let's get into, um, in this chapter, just what some of these internment centers were like. So let's move, um, you, you talk about some of the internment centers in other cities that were not Beijing, but let's move into Beijing. Um, itself, because there's some really interesting descriptions in here of what it was like to be, or what it would have been, what, what it might have been like to be in one of these centers. So, can you talk about that? What was it? What were the internment centers in Beijing like? Who was there? Um, and what did somebody who was integrated into one of these internment centers likely to encounter while they were actually being interned? Can you take us into this space for a little bit? Uh, so, what I is the ideal vision of what these looked like. And um, I have that actually. Um, it comes out of these official sources, these work reports that um, re-educators wrote. It also has a documentary film um, from 1949, which actually, there are, there are several films, several propaganda films about re-education, but there are a couple of documentary films, one from 49 and one from 50, um, which used the, the real re-education centers in Beijing as sets. So, uh, you know, they could have polished up the sets, but we still, we still get to see, um, 
the, the actual educators that worked there um, and, and what these spaces looked like. And they were basically, you know, that space was not easy to find in Beijing. There were a lot of people. There were too many people. One of the things they were trying to do when they got to Beijing was the new state was trying to get people out of Beijing. It was just swollen with uh, refugees and other people who had run there during the Civil War um, and during the early stages of the of the takeover um, of other northern cities, uh, people had run to Beijing. And so, so the, the new state is trying to get people out of Beijing. They're trying to register people and get them out. Um, and in fact, in a lot of ways, the early re-education of vagrants was very much connected to let's round these people up and let's deport as many of them as we can back to the countryside. And then we'll, we'll deal with the people that are left and we'll re-educate them. So, but, they, but in, in any case, they have no space. They've got no space. Um, so they have to use spaces that were already equipped to handle these people. So they take over the brothels, mm-hmm. use the well-appointed brothels, so re-educa- uh, prostitutes were re-educated, maybe not in their own brothels, but in first and second class brothels, um, in eight, uh, eight re-education centers, uh, eight units, which were in 13 different first and second class brothels, whereas um, beggars uh, and petty thieves, they took over the, um, the, the earlier poorhouses that had existed under the Kuomintang, and they re-educated beggars and petty thieves inside those old poor houses, which were not centralized. So the, the brothels where they re-educated prostitutes were all right together in the red light district, whereas the places where beggars were re-educated were all over the city in various places. Um, so, and again, all I know about what went on in these places um, is what the ideal vision of practice tells us. But what it tells us is that internees spent the vast majority of their time in the classroom that re-educators really believed that they could get these people to make an initial transformation, enough that they would volunteer to start trying to be members of the people, start participating in labor um, in the classroom, that they would um, give them consciousness-raising texts that explain to them how the old society had oppressed and exploited working people so that people had no choice but to fall into prostitution and begging. And then they would give them a chance to, they always said, it's, it's great to, to, to give them texts about other people, but the most important thing really is to draw these experiences out of the re-educatees themselves. And so they would have them speak bitterness, right? Which is a classic communist mobilization strategy. You get people to talk about the suffering that they endured under the old society so that it becomes clear to them that they were indeed oppressed and so that it becomes clear to them who oppressed them, right? So they, the, the point is to get people to say, all these horrible things happened to me. I was sold into prostitution and this brothel keeper is the one who made me do these things and the one who oppressed me um, and the Communist Party saved me. And going through this process all in the classroom, early educators said that their attorneys were doing and they all lived together, the re-educators and the attorneys all lived together in these um, converted brothels and poorhouses and they ate their meals together. And, you know, according to the ideal vision of practice, they, um, they sang songs together. They had great camaraderie. They all helped each other with everything. Of course, even in these own, in these idealized sources, there's a much darker vision. We know that the very first internment of uh, vagrants of beggars in Beijing went very badly. The beggars basically took over. They just sort of staged a coup against the re-educators, tied them up, um, and ran a, a, a mass exodus. And then um, when the when the the re-educators finally managed to get a little bit of control again, um, the, the the beggars erupted again. They they brought them all back in. They they captured them again. They erupted again, and the whole thing you know wasn't stopped until one internee was beaten to death by a police officer. We also know that the prostitutes were were uh, you know not 
not any more happy to be interns. There's a great story. One cadre many years later in the, in the 1990s remembered that the prostitutes were also upset and they were, you know, trapped there in this re-education center and they were be- being guarded by these People's Liberation Army soldiers with guns. And um, one of the prostitutes went over to one of the guards and just opened her dressing gown and she was completely naked and flashed him. And when he sort of averted his eyes, she said, run, sisters, you know, the PLA is never going to fire on us. And they all went running, screaming through the door and the cadres were yelling, you're just going to be brought back, you know, don't you dare. And they ran away. And so, <laughs> so we know that the ideal vision of practice <laughs> not reflected in reality. The cadres said that themselves. But the point is that the ideal was really, really important to them. And they wanted to create that. They said, yes, 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 we have these problems, but we're getting there. We're getting there. This is the way we want to treat these people. And yeah, and as I say in that chapter, that mattered. You know, people want to say, right, but even in these sources, you've got evidence that that wasn't the case. So clearly it's just propaganda. But it, it, to read it as just propaganda really fundamentally misreads these sources because, you know, the bottom line is that the experience of these people was really different to enemies who were incarcerated and who, the ideal practice was to force them to labor, to punish them, and to treat them like criminals, um, to execute them if they ran away. Prostitutes ran away. They were brought back and yelled at. Mm-hmm. Revolutionaries ran away. They were brought back and shot. So these ideal discourses have really very real-world effects on the lives of, of individuals. Great. Thank you so much. And this actually takes us um, really nicely into, you have an entire chapter in the book that looks at the curriculum of thought reform. And the curriculum um, of thought reform is particularly for non-enemies. And it's actually really important because, as you mentioned here, that which was thought to separate non-enemy lumpen proletariat from the lumpen proletariat as a whole was low political consciousness. And so through education, really serious transformation was thought to be possible. And that's why such, or one of the reasons why such an effort was placed on um, developing a curriculum and re-educating through, uh, in the classroom, um, rather than through labor in this period. So you've, uh, you take us through some of the elements of the curriculum of re-education centers in this chapter and talk about some of the materials, including, um, and some of the practices, and you've already mentioned speaking bitterness. You talk about the importance of self-criticism, of denunciation meetings, and of texts, and the, and the reading of texts in groups, so that people who may have come in who didn't have the best literacy skills could also engage in these conversations about textual materials that are meant to um, encourage and mobilize them in this re-education process. One of the stories that comes up in this chapter and in this context that's also really interesting and really notable is a story of someone named Li Lingyun. Can you talk a little bit about her um, and, and the significance that she has in the context of what's happening in this part of the book? Yeah, so I, I found out about Li Lingyun by watching this old propaganda film, not one of the ones that used the actual, well, it used the actual re-education center as a set, but it used actors, right? This film, Sisters Stand Up from 1950, a propaganda film that was um, shown around the country about the re-education of prostitutes in Beijing um, and uh, how successful the, the communists had been in Beijing liberating these, these women. And um, I, this documentary was remastered and repackaged um, in 2005. And it comes with like, it was so, it was such a big deal. It comes with like a, like a making up the make of the documentary where filmmakers and historians went back and tried to figure out, you know, how did they make this, this propaganda piece? Um, and in, in doing that, they discovered that the vast majority of 
this film were professional actresses and actors, but there's one character, the evil brothel keeper is actually played by a former prostitute herself. Um, that she had, the, the filmmaker had gone to the, um, had gone to the, the re-education center and seen a play that the prostitutes wrote themselves about their own re-education, which showed in front of audiences in Beijing and kind of became the basis for this film. Um, and she had done this incredible job playing this, this cruel brothel owner. And she was so good at it that someone in the audience once threw a rock at her and hit her in the face because they were so mad. And again, you know, I, this is, this is all coming from official sources, but in any case, um, much of this is much after the fact is, you know, sources from 2005, right. That's repeating these, these, um, these stories. But anyway, so, so, uh, supposedly she, she was so good that, that people wanted to throw rocks at her. They hated her so much. So, so this filmmaker recruits her, uh, to be in this propaganda film and she comes, she becomes a, a kind of a minor celebrity in the early 1950s because she's this prostitute turned laborer turned actress. Um, and you know, she, her life story supposedly is that she was, uh, purchased by a procurus, by a famous Beijing procurus named the fat lady, but she doesn't know who her parents are, um, that the fat lady tricked her by telling her that she was her biological daughter, but she only did that so that she could use and exploit her. Um, and that the, she just, the fat lady just, you know, forced her into to prostitution encounter after prostitution encounter, two marriages that she didn't consent to, and that she really had um, the sort of, she, she epitomized the classic, prostitution exploitation tale. Um, and then when the communists come uh, to Beijing in 1949, she's one of the prostitutes that ends up in this original re-education center and she becomes this star re-educatee. She also, you know, she's such a star um, at this time. And, you know, uh, there's all this information about her. So the filmmakers of this 2005 making of film try to find her. They say, well, well we're going to find this leaving unit and find out what happened to her. And, um, you know, they looked everywhere. They, they like, like me, they put ads on the internet, they did all kinds of stuff. No trace. Couldn't find a single trace of her. And I've been looking for her for years too, and haven't been able to find a single trace of her. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Did, I mean, she must've existed. Uh, great work on propaganda from, you know, the Soviet Union shows that it's a lot harder to completely fabricate this stuff usually comes from real people in real situations, but, you know, she really did sort of, you know, vanish into thin air. So, Mindy, as we move further into the book, you have a chapter that brings us right into the heart of this issue of labor that we've been talking about um, sort of on the margins from now or from the beginning of our conversation to now. Chapter four looks at the massive state project to transform what are um, variously known as parasites here into laborers. And labor um, here becomes a major touchstone of the kinds of discourses around transformation, its successes, and its perceived failures. Agents of the state had claimed in this context that understand understanding alone of the ideas of communism could transform people into being voluntary workers. However, at the same time, what's happening is that many of the former re-education-centered internees, according to cadre reports, are actually going back to their old ways after their re-education and then ending up right back in the centers. So, this creates, as you tell us in this chapter, all kinds of really interesting consequences, but one of the consequences leads to a really major transformation in the way reformers or re-educators are thinking of the power and the obligation 
to perform labor by people being re-educated. So this leads to a policy change in um, by the state council in 1957, and this is a major, major turning point, at least from my perspective as a reader, this seemed like a major turning point with um, something called the decision regarding the question of re-education through labor. So can you speak a little bit about this turning point, about these issues, and, and what changed um, as a result of this decision and this transformation? Yeah, so so the, the most basic thing that seems to happen on the surface is that, yeah, they go from an ideal practice based on persuasion and education to one based on forced labor. Enemies were always re-educated through forced labor. Vagrants were originally re-educated through persuasion and education, after which they, you know, there's lots of evidence that vagrants were indeed forced as early as, you know, 1930, right, to, to labor, and certainly in the 1950s. But ideally, they were not supposed to be they were supposed to volunteer uh, to engage labor. A 1957 ideal practice says that every re-educatee, whether they're an enemy or a vagrant, should be forced to labor. Um, and, and that was evident really, really early on in my dissertation research, and it became a sort of a key theme um, in, the, in the dissertation, this, this shift from education and persuasion to labor. And I originally read it as a, a decline of optimism, as a basically a failure. Well, you know, they tried to get them through persuasion and education and um, they couldn't, so they forced them to labor. And, you know, maybe, um, maybe that's what happened, right? That might be in practice what happened. But it always really struck me that that's not the argument that cadres were making. And again, one could say, right, that's propaganda and they were lying, but I don't, I, that was never compelling to me, right? It was never compelling to me. But why change the ideal practice then? Why not just keep saying then? But yeah, we, we educate them and persuade them, and they're all volunteering in 1958, too, just like they were in 1949. Why did they change the ideal practice? And I think, so that became, that became the real question for me. Um, how do you reconcile these claims of unbelievable success with these claims of, you know, ongoing recidivism that they just can't, I mean, you just read these, these reports and these cadres are like, we just don't know what to do. It's the same people over and over and over again. They just keep coming back to the re-education center. They say they're born. We send them out to labor. They refuse to labor and they're sent back. And it started to, to look like as they started to argue more and more in favor of forced labor, as the years went on, they weren't arguing that persuasion and education hadn't worked. In fact, they were arguing, they used this term, the vast majority. They were arguing that the vast majority of people had indeed been reformed, and their numbers backed that up. You know, they had thousands in the beginning. They have, you know, hundreds in one re-education center at the end. Um, and so it's a small group of people for whom otherwise effective re-education methods are not producing that voluntary transformation. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a critique of, of re-education methods. They weren't saying education and persuasion didn't work. They were saying it did work. And these people on whom it did not work are different to the vast majority. And so, again, is that an idealized um, appraisal of this? Of course. You know, they complained about resistance from the very beginning. The behavior of these internees didn't change much. You know, they flashed soldiers and ran away. They beat up cadres. They did all of that in 1949. They did all of it in 1957. But the way that the cadres interpreted this was really different because they believed that or they or they argued, I guess, I don't know whether they it, but I think they did. They argued that thought reform had been really effective, that it had transformed the vast majority of vacillators into members of the people. And so they started to just become very suspicious about anyone who was left over and to argue that harsher methods, like the ones that had previously been used for on these 
Well, because their connection to the masses was no longer as evident. And these people who are left over, these troublemakers, um, you have a really interesting discussion of them in the fifth chapter of the book, one of whom um, really stands out as being somebody I really wanted to ask you about, in part because your discussion of um, this beggar and petty thief, Lu Ming, in the context of the nine worst internees in Beijing, I just think that would like make a great band name also, Lu Ming and the nine worst internees. I mean, it just it's a really striking way of... Um, of uh, articulating uh, this group of people. But this is a long-winded way of saying, can you talk about in particular one of the people or um, this individual as part of this small group that really epitomized who these troublemakers were and what happened to him and how was he dealt with? Right, so early on, Han Shoujan epitomizes the party's view on vagrants, right? They're victims. The minute you offer them both ideological transformation and material transformation, they, they grab it and they're happy and they become, you know, not only members of the people, but also revolutionaries who go on to make revolution and convert other people's ideological perspectives. Um, by the end of this period, by, by the late 1950s, um, the party's view of vagrants is much better exemplified by looming and some of his, his, um, friends, I guess, in the re-education centers in Beijing. And yeah, these are the nine worst internees in Beijing, and they are bad. I mean, <laughs> they are bad. Anything that you can think of that one could do. I mean, they, you know, they, yes, they, they fight. Yes, they, they throw food. They attack cadres. They mock people. Um, they, steal, they, they steal stuff from inside the re-education center. They run away. They sell it on the streets. Um, they constantly pretend that they are sick so that they can go in and harass the doctors and just things up in the sick ward. Um, they attempt suicide. Uh, suicide attempts are depicted in this period as a thoroughly rebellious act, not as a not as one's desire to escape from prison, but as a way to sort of punish the cadres and just make trouble within these re-education centers. So these 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 nine worst attorneys do all of these things. They're also looming and. Um, and a couple of others are also accused of, of political crimes. They're accused of, you know, saying terrible things about Stalin. They're accused of um, saying uh, saying terrible things about the Communist Party, saying that they believe in, um, you know, the nationalist political philosophy that, you know, uh, the Americans are, are better than the Chinese. They are, they're accused of all these political crimes. Um, and when you first look at the portraits of, of looming and his, and you know, looming is the leader of a, of a, of a group that just is, is determined to sort of, you know, attack the Padres. And he's at least attributed with all of these really um, intelligent sort of witty remarks. Like, you know, somebody goes on a, so, so, somebody is shirking production in the re-education center and they get in trouble and they go on a hunger strike. And then someone comes along and says, one of the cadres comes over and re-educates this hunger striker and says, you got to stop, you know, you got to, got to be re-educated. And he starts to sort of vacillate, you know, that step that comes right before thought reform, according to the communists and looming comes in and, you know, tries to get him to stay active in the opposition. And he says, Hey, you know, we got to make revolution. You got to make revolution until the bitter end. And so he turns the communist zone rhetoric against them. And he criticizes cadres for um, not believing in the communist mission and all these things. So if you look at him, you think, yeah, I mean, obviously um, this is a bad guy. They obviously want to get this guy out of the re-education center. And they do. They send him, they transfer him to um, a labor camp for enemies, for accused enemies. And his, his and some of these early um, transfers sort of, foreshadow the, the eventual transfer the eventual transfer of all vagrant internees to um, enemy re-education camps, or at least they share cells with with enemies. 
And so, you know, at first it looks pretty straightforward. Yeah, there were these real troublemakers and um, they did really bad stuff and they got transferred. But the more you look at it, the more you see that Lu Ming is not accused of anything that other attorneys aren't also accused of. I could not find one single allegation against him that hadn't been made against another attorney who was late, who was not transferred, who was later declared reeducated and, and touted as a, a labor model. The only difference was that Lu Ming never stopped. The difference was that he refused to be reformed. And so by the end, what they were arguing was that the problem wasn't that somebody committed individual acts of resistance. That's normal. It happens. In fact, it's even a result of the very problems for which you're being reeducated. Of course, you want to resist the state because that's why you have a warped mind. But if you are reeducated many, many, many times and you never, you never reform, then you start to look like you're not a part of this vast majority, which is according to the cadres reforming and which is being released. And so looming is really a portrait of failure to reform, failure to respond to otherwise effective thought reform methods. And that's why he's transferred to um, an enemy re-education camp. Great. Now, as we get to the close of the book, and I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about um, what's happening at the very end of the book, because the conclusion takes these issues and looks at the ways that um, sort of debates around the usefulness and appropriateness of conceptual frameworks, institutions, and practices of reform developed during the communist revolution are or are not still applicable in contemporary China, in a market-oriented China. And you take us through some of the, ba- the, the uh, debates here. So in the 20th century, scholars of, and officials in China have really gone back and forth over whether old me- these old, I'm using quotes here, methods of reform are applicable or should be thrown out um, in today's China. Can you speak a little bit to those debates and um, what's going on there? Yeah, so the day that my final page proofs were due to the press, there was this huge announcement that um, re-education through labor was going to be dramatically um, restructured or abolished. Mm-hmm. So I put in the last sentence really fast <laughs> and sent away my, my page proofs. Um, this is not the first time the state has, has said that they're going to restructure re-education through labor, although it does look like certain localities are already are already making um, plans to abolish. And so it looks like this, you know, may, they may actually abolish it. Um, you know, what that means practically is, is unclear. They're still going to have places where they put vagrants um, who they see as a threat to social stability. But um, the point is that this is, this the, the, the continuing utility of this system is really um, in question. And, and one of the thing, there are, there are defenders and there are detractors, but they all seem to agree that the sort of Mao era roots are really crucial. And one of the things that I saw that was most crucial, one of the most crucial continuities from 1957, when, um, yeah, the decision on re-education through labor, which is still for the, for the, for the moment, um, effective in China, which still governs re-education through labor institutions. Um, during that time, one of the continuities that was most important was that re-educators are portrayed as people who are different from the vast majority. They're, they're not ordinary people who make ordinary mistakes. These are not people who accidentally say something against the government. These are not people who, who accidentally, um, find themselves in bad situations. These are people who, you know, either engage in prostitution and really it's supposed to only be recidivists. They, there are, there's a lot, there are a lot of localities where you're not even really supposed to intern a first time prostitute or even a first time thief. There are other ways um, to deal with those kinds of crimes sort of um, 
increased supervision within work units, things like that, neighborhood surveillance. So really, it's only supposed to be recidivists or people who have done something that is so different to what the vast majority of ideological crimes that are above and beyond what ordinary people commit. Those are the only people that are supposed to be in re-education centers. Now, again, as, you know, as with in the 1950s, the, the rhetoric doesn't, doesn't match the reality. There are, of course, first-time offenders, and there are people who you know, practice Qigong sitting in these centers. But the, the, the ideal discourse is really crucial because it, it's the very, it's the very rhetoric that the, that the state uses to justify incarcerating these people. We're not incarcerating ordinary people who oppose the government, they say. We're incarcerating people whose behavior is so deviant and so different from that of ordinary individuals that they really are a threat to social stability. So that argument um, you know, has continued to not only frame the, the re-education project, but, but justify it. Well, Mindy, thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the book itself. We had a, we had a conversation that ranged through a lot of the material in the book, but there's so much in here, including stories, including arguments, um, descriptions of a lot of these sources, and lots of other things that we didn't actually have time to get to. It's a very rich work. Is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I suppose the one thing that I touched on that I didn't say a lot about is, you know, the way in the earlier years, this was all connected to the category of the people. One of my biggest goals in the book was to try to figure out what it meant to be a member of the people or what it was supposed to mean, not, not what people experienced it as, but what it was supposed to mean to be a member of the people. And these vagrants were, were key to that. They were some of the most important propaganda models for reeducating the ordinary people. It was through um, detailing the process by which prostitutes and beggars were reformed that, you know, reeducators working with the ordinary people through propaganda showed people what characteristics got someone included in the people and what characteristics got them excluded from the people. Um, and I connect all of that, you know, uh, into something that I call mass line reeducation, which was applicable not just to people inside reeducation centers, but to people outside reeducation centers and was a real holistic effort to reform all of the Chinese people at one time. And so I think that um, by looking at this group of people, this group of marginalized people, but who were also really central to Chinese communism, um, we really do get a real understanding of what it was supposed to mean to be a member of the people in this period of time and how that changed and how it had changed. Um, and how basically by 1957, I argue that the people had come to be synonymous to a certain extent with reformable, with reformability. Great. Thank you. And now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you? So right now I have been collecting um, letters from the people. So I'm still interested in this category of the people. But as I just said, I in the, the first book, I, I couldn't really get at people's. How did you, how, what was the experience of being a member of the people, of becoming a member of the people like? I was looking at what the state um, thought about that. And so, so now I'm wanting to try to get at maybe some of the ways people experienced becoming a member of the people, or at least how they talked about those experiences. And so I'm collecting all of these letters, um, which were sent by ordinary people. Although again, you get a, you get a, a problematization of categories because a lot of those ordinary people are cadres, right? Um, they, who send letters to the state, um, asking for help with grievances, um, asking for various kinds of assistance, praising neighbors, complaining about neighbors, whatever. And some of these are held in official archives, but a lot of them are in, um, you know, old, book markets and they're available at paper markets, um, these kind of so-called garbage sources. Um, and so I'm collecting as many of these letters as I can, archival and otherwise, and trying to 
yeah, follow, follow this category of the people um, from the other side. Oh, that sounds great. And it sounds like a really fascinating process from the perspective of like the historian's craft as well, in terms of how you're accumulating and looking for and identifying sources. Well, best of luck with that project, Mindy. Thank you so much for making the time to talk about this project with me. And it was a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure to me too. Thank you very much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.